Thank you, uh, Peter, for leading us in our time of worship thus far. The Sunday school children, or another two junior classes, are going to their respective rooms. I believe we've got the senior class staying with us today. And um, so you, older kids, I think you've got a question sheet here today, so you will need to watch these PowerPoints as I put them up carefully because I think some of the answers will be on the PowerPoints. Okay, you know, this morning, for many of us here, the why, when and how questions concerning believers' baptism will be firmly locked in your hearts and minds. You kind of know them from the scriptures. But some of you may be clinging to your own opinions and ideas and because of that perhaps have some unanswered questions regarding the ceremony that we're going to uh, see a little bit later on where Brett is going to be baptised. Well, this morning as a minister of the gospel, I want to make sure that you have not an understanding based on opinion or ideas, but an understanding of baptism from the scriptures. So it's just not my idea, it's the Bible's idea, and that's what we all want, right? Because we would hold that the scriptures are our sole authority for life and godliness, and even for things like baptism. And uh, because personal opinion can be powerful, and something else that can be powerful is religious tradition. Because as some of you know, when you think about baptism, you'll be thinking about different modes and different ways. And um, we'll just get into that a little bit later on. Um, But just to make sure that you have no doubts where and when baptism originated for the church, we need to read the text on the screen that tells us where this began, where it became uh, relevant for the church and that text is known as the Great Commission and you would have all heard of it I am sure at some at this stage let me read it and you can follow on the screen for me and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now those words, as you know, some of you may not, were the last words of Jesus before he ascended back to heaven. It was after his resurrection, and before he ascended to heaven, he met with his disciples, and this was the last words, hence is known as the Great Commission. And so it was given to his disciples, not only for then, but his disciples of all time, including every born-again Christian here today. It was a command of Jesus to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all things from the word of God. In other words, the commandment was of Jesus was to evangelize, to witness, to engage with people everywhere telling people about the person and work of Jesus Christ who came to die for them and their sins 
at the cross of Calvary. That's what they were commanded to do. That's the message that they were to give out. And this is what God, in his word, calls the gospel. Gospel can be interpreted as good news. And it's the good news that Jesus Christ came to be a willing substitute for sinners who are under the wrath of God. Now, that may sound pretty heavy and uh, foreign to some of you, but that's where the scriptures tell us every man and woman is under. We are born in sin. No one excluded. But God, in his grace and love, has stated in John 3 and 16, a well-known verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this is the good news to people who are under the wrath of God, of whom we all are as sinners, and that is really good news, right? And so we need this good news because of the bad news. The bad news declares that, as I've said, we're all under the law of sin and the scriptures make it clear that we're all under God's condemnation. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God abides in us presently. Not kind of a future thing, but abides in us now. And sad to say, but the truth of the matter is, we're all born that way. Born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's standard or God's glory. So there it is. It's not my idea. This comes from the authority of the scriptures and we believe it and so I preach it. But it gets worse. Sorry to say, the bad news gets worse because God is just. You know what we mean by just? There's no grey areas with God. There's no putting his head in the sand kind of thing and ignoring sin. Every sin must be dealt with. And because God is just, he has said that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and 23. He's talking about an eternal separation from God here. He's talking about the culmination of all his wrath. But you know what? That same verse, I just love this, that same verse with all that bad news in it tells us the good news of the gospel. For it carries on and says in Romans 6 to 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? The free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So the great commission, as we we see, to make a disciple of Jesus Christ is the witnessing responsibility of believers. So every born-again believer is to be busy and to be permeating and to be witnessing to that truth of the gospel. But let's just switch the coin. To become a disciple of Jesus Christ, what is that? It's simply this. It's to trust and obey the gospel according to the scriptures. That's what that is. You see, you do not get the option of just trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and then reneging on the obedience part. We need to obey the scriptures Obey the gospel. You see, genuine trust in Christ, what that does, a person who genuinely trusts in Jesus Christ, it so captivates his or her heart that obedience to the Lord will be its fruit. You see, the two cannot be separated. So what I want to do now is to briefly look at an example of this in action. I want to put some, can I say, some practical legs on this trusting and obeying. 
and what it means to be unsaved and to become saved, to be under the wrath of God and then to be free from God's condemnation. I want to put some practical legs on that by looking at another text in Scripture. And if you just follow along with me in Acts 16, on the screen there, Acts chapter 16, and so the church had begun, uh, just to give it a historical context, the disciples that had Jesus spoke to, they obeyed and they went out, and those special 12 that were chosen, they went out as well, and many others, and they preached the gospel. And the, the Apostle Paul and his team were busy in doing this, and in a missionary journey that the Apostle Paul was on with his team, they came to the country of Philippi. And if you want to know Philippi, it's where kind of Greece is, and it's up north, and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's where he was, and he, is, and, and he came to this place, and... Um, and he preached the gospel and there was a lady got saved there and he carried on staying in this city. And this is where we pick up at verse 16. And as we were going to a place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing... For many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, obviously this was an evil spirit, it wasn't the spirit of God, and this is what he says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. Now this caused a few problems, because this girl who was demon-possessed, etc., etc., was owned by someone, and this is what happened next. And when their owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful to us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. That's what happens to these genuine witnesses who were obeying the Great Commission. And uh, they were in dire straits. And um, then this is what happened. Having received this order, he put them in, that's the jailer, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks, And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. These guys wouldn't let up, right? They still witnessed. The Great Commission was something to be obeyed passionately. And even in the hour of of darkness in prison, they witnessed. Verse 26 says, "And And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison door was open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul, with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So here was the Apostle Paul and his team in obedience to the Great Commission. They were making disciples in this country of Macedonia. Firstly, this woman Lydia that I spoke of before, she came to faith. It says there in verse 14 of the same chapter, when the Lord opened her heart, she came to faith in Christ. And by the way, she was a religious woman. But she still needed to see and know the Lord and to believe in him. But as we have read, while still in the same city of Philippi, trouble was brewing. Paul and Silas were harshly treated. They were thrown into prison by the authorities simply for being a witness of the gospel. But you know what? It was in this prison that God confronts another sinner through the witness and testimony of the apostle. And this was the Philippian jailer. The narrative itself is self-explanatory. But please note the ongoing witness of Paul and Silas. They were singing hymns and praises and praying to God, to listening ears. (laughs) To listening ears. And then what happened? It tells us of this miraculous earthquake that struck that prison that evening. Miraculous in the sense that it uniquely opened all the doors and shook loose all the shackles that secured the prisoners. Imagine that. That's not normal, believe you me. Normally most of them would have been killed. So God's hand was in this, right? The prisoners now were free. They had no shackles on their hands and their feet. Paul's stocks had been burst asunder with the earthquake. The chains were gone. The doors were even open. Why this is important? Because in Roman times, any jailer, it was part of their job description. And you understood it before you took that job on. It was a reasonably well-paid job. But you took it on understanding that if any prisoners under your charge escaped, you paid for it with your life. It's a pretty heavy heavy codicil added to your job description, right? But the jailer knew this. He knew this is what it was. And and so the earthquake struck, the prisoners were free, and an instant fear gripped him over this reality, knowing that his head was going to be on the executioner's block within hours because some of his prisoners were escaped. And so rather than go through all that trauma, he was going to fall on his sword and commit suicide. Get it over and done with. But before he does fall on his sword, Paul cries out those amazing words. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here, every single prisoner in that prison. doesn't tell us how many but there were obviously more than Paul and Silas. 
Because there was many other prisoners listening to them, singing praises and praying to God, we're told in the scriptures. And so the, so the, so the jailer checks it out. He takes a lightning and, uh, and he sees them all miraculously present there. And he was instantly relieved. <sighs> no, he wasn't instantly relieved. You see that? He wasn't instantly relieved. Because what happens now, a greater fear consumed him. A greater fear than he had before of losing his own life because of the crime supposedly he had committed and allowing prisoners to escape. A greater fear overtook him. This time, it says, trembling with fear, knowing that these men were from God and that God was with them, what does he do? He falls down before them. He falls down before them. You know, folks, whenever a person, whenever a person is confronted by God, by whatever means God chooses, be it an earthquake, or be it a near-death experience, or be it some terminal disease, or be it through the reading of the Scriptures, there needs be, listen to this, there needs be and should be a healthy and holy fear of the one and true God. And that happened here. The fear of God drove this Philippian jailer to his knees. Then comes the ultimate question. The ultimate question. What must I do to be saved? That's all the jailer could pour out of his lips. This question was not about being saved, by the way, from the executioner's block. No, no, that was been and gone. That's peripheral. Okay, he knew he was ever rescued from that because all the prisoners were still present and there were no, no one trying to escape. This question was about being saved from the just condemnation of God. This question was about being saved from the eternal wrath of God upon guilty sinners that he knew he was. And so the jailer knew that he desperately needed God's mercy. What must I do to be saved? That's an awesome question, right? That's straight to the point. Nearly two years ago, Brett Summerton came to this church with a question on his mind. A question that was hidden to most of us. I was privy to it right up front because I spoke to this guy and talked to him. He was a complete stranger. He's not known to any one of us. He didn't belong. He didn't come to this church. But he came with a question on his mind. A question that plagued his inquisitive mind that only the authority of God's word could answer and would answer and satisfy. He wanted answers. His question was not the same as the jailer's. But his query that he had in himself certainly steered him into the same direction. It steered him not to a religion, not to a church, not even to some ceremony. It steered him and directed him to a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
And this is what happened in the jailer that night. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And later on, we're going to share, if Brett will share about his original query that he had that God used to bring him faith in Jesus Christ. But in the meantime, here was this jailer trembling with his own huge and most important question that can ever, anyone can ever ask coming from his lips. What must I do to be saved? You know what? Sometimes we become so focused, is it not? We become so focused on the here and now things of our lives that the eternal and urgent things get pushed aside. How true that is. So how does Apostle Paul, the disciple maker, answer this ultimate question? Pretty simple, really. Pretty simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There you have it. And that's exactly what the jailer and his whole household did that evening. Obviously, the jailer took them back to his house and we see what took place there. And and while he was in his home, there was Paul and Silas and Paul opened the scriptures and explained about Jesus Christ and what he had done and why he had done it on the cross of Calvary and his love for them. And they trusted in the word of the Lord. They committed themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ who they personally understood had died for them, had rose again and ascended back to heaven and about him coming again to receive all those who trust him to himself. Paul preached that to them and explained that to the whole household and they believed, they trusted. And that is the belief that took place in their hearts toward God. They trusted in God and all that he had done for them through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. Look at the amazing change that took place in this one time hardened, and believe you me, you only have to look up your history of antiquities to know how hard Roman jailers were. But look at the change that took place in this once hard-hearted Roman jailer. You see, the one who was about to take this sword and commit suicide was now protecting and caring and washing the wounds of these men of God. Isn't that awesome? Verse 33 tells us, And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. You see, folks, this man through faith had become a follower. He had become a disciple of Jesus Christ. God in Christ through faith had changed this hard-hearted man and now his actions were living proof of the miraculous heart change that took place. That's what was happening here. But that's not all. That's not all. He does something else here we see. He does something else. He just didn't only wash their wounds and give them, uh, give them a meal. And it says there he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And so we can take it from Gandhi from other texts that his family, just because their Philippine jailer was the head of the household, just because he had become a Christian, the others were Christians. No, no, no. We take it for granted from other scriptures that we are only saved by grace through faith. And that's individual faith, right? And so we take it that the whole household, and this doesn't necessarily only mean children, and uh, it could have been, uh, it would have been their servants that they had, etc., etc., attached to that household. And so they all came and heard the gospel, and they miraculously, by God's power, responded in faith and became genuine followers of Jesus Christ. And so here it was, faith without obedience, does not fit into God's scheme of things. You know that? It doesn't work. There cannot be one without the other. 
Genuine faith in Christ will produce an obedient life. There will be this innate desire and a goal and a, and a completely different worldview about who we are in Christ. And we'll des- we will love differently. We'll see things differently. We'll pursue God, even though we are not perfect. And even though we muck up at times, even as Christians, there will be this overall pursuing of God and wanting to please Him. Well, this is what happened. This is what, this is what you see starting here. So faith without obedience, it doesn't fit into God's scheme of things. And so that means that believers are called to submit to God's word and obey this command. This command what? What command? Remember the Great Commission? The Commission commands disciples to baptize believers. So here was Paul and Silas and the team. They were preaching the gospel. And just like you today, you go out, you witness, you tell others of the, of the love of Christ and, and the mercy that can be found in uh, God's mercy in Christ. And, um, but that's not all. It's just not about believing. It's about obeying. And one of the most important ways of obeying is, and one of the most initial ways of obeying, is what is a baptism. And so if the disciples were commanded to go out and evangelize or make disciples and baptize and teach, surely that means that those who hear the message are to submit to the word of God and obey this command that the disciples are given. And so what is baptism? Baptism is an expression of obedience and willing submission to the Lord's command. So we can ask another question here. We can really ask another question here. Who can and who should be baptized then? Let's bring it right down to today. The scripture is very clear. It is believers who are baptized. You got that? It's believers who are baptized. Nowhere in scripture is it stated that infants or babies are to be baptized. Nowhere. That's religious tradition speaking, may I say kindly. Babies are not old enough, just think about this logically, babies are not old enough to understand, let alone come to a saving knowledge in Jesus Christ. Use Alex and Nia, they've had a little baby. Believe it or not, that baby is born a sinner, Alex. And it's not going to be too long before you already realize it. He's going to throw a patty and he's going to spit the dummy and he's going to do all those kind of things. Where did he learn to do that? He didn't learn to do that. It's in him. It's his nature. And so his nature has to be changed. He has to receive a new nature. He's got to be born again. And so faith is always a prerequisite for baptism. Note the order of the Great Commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them. It's not the other way around. Not the other way around. Acts 3.28 bears this out. It says, repent and let each one of you be baptized. Acts 2.41 says, and as many as gladly received the word, that means they become believers, were baptized. So individual belief clearly precedes baptism. So in answer to our question, who can and who should be baptized? The Philippian jailer and his family, certainly. Why? For they all trusted in Christ. It is believers who are to be baptized. This is why Brett is going to be baptized today. He is trusted in Jesus Christ. He is a new man in Christ who now wants to make public, you got that? He now wants to make public the business that took place in his heart between himself and God. The trust, the obedience, the commitment that he 
dealt with between him and God as a sinner who is now saved, he wants to go public with that. And the scripture commands the way of doing that is to be baptized. Baptism doesn't save him. Baptism doesn't save anyone. It, it doesn't, it's, this baptism today is not going to make Brett a child of God. So why be baptized? Simply this, genuine believers will want to obey the Lord by being publicly identified with him. Going down into that water, as Brett will do in a few moments, it's an action picture. And as it's been done right down, down through the centuries, right, even Jesus Christ was baptized. Why? So he could identify himself with his own people. He wasn't a sinner that needed to be saved, but his baptism was about identification, as Brett's baptism is about identification. I'm going to publicly identify myself with Jesus Christ. So going down into that water is an action picture demonstrating that he has died with Christ. And when Brett comes up out of the water, which he will demonstrate that we have risen with Christ. We won't leave you down here, Brett. When he comes up out of that water, that demonstrates that he is risen with Christ and will walk in newness of life with Jesus Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Isn't that wonderful? That's what Brett will be publicly occurring to you all here this morning. He's died to the old way of life and now will walk through life as a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. May God challenge us to all trust and obey, for there is no other way. I'm going to ask Brett now to come forward and um, share with you his testimony so that you can hear from his own mouth his faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Brett. Firstly, I'd just like to say it's been a joy learning and growing in my faith amongst my second family here. I can't imagine the Lord having sent me anywhere better. I was raised a Catholic and like most Catholics, I thought having some water sprinkled on me as a child, going through First Communion in Grade 3, Confirmation in Grade 7 and then generally being a good person was the way to heaven. When I finished school, God was only given the odd thought here and there mainly when I wanted something. I went through a few jobs and would fall into a rut when a job ended. Not working, the days would begin to blend into each other and days become weeks, become months and it was hard to find a purpose. I began filling my time four or so years ago playing an online game and teaming up with people around the world. Eventually I started talking to a Christian in America for a few months, religion didn't come up much during our discussions, but when it did, I was intrigued about her passion and knowledge of her faith. I've always had a thirst for knowledge, especially on topics that interest me, and I found myself wanting to learn more. I was asking questions at every opportunity and going online to recommended sources to try and quench that thirst. At this stage, I was coming at it from a logical and critical point of view. I wanted Christianity and the Bible to be able to defend itself in this modern scientific age. If I could pick holes in it, then I would end up satisfied I'd learnt something new. But for all my questions, the answers were found in God's inerrant word. 
What likely began as a mental exercise, learning about the Bible, ended up as faith in Jesus Christ. So for me it was true. Faith came from hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now I understand that Christ died so that my sins would be forgiven, something I could not do of my own accord, but by God's grace and great mercy. That he was raised on the third day so that I could have life, having been born again and washed clean of my life enslaved to sin. Reading Paul's letter to the Romans last week, this passage struck a chord with me. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Thank you, Britt. What did you say? Let's just pray for Brett now, and then when I've finished, um, he will uh, and Lee will retire to get changed, and then uh, we will sing a hymn together. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do give thanks for your blessings and goodness. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the word of God, which is our sole authority for everything in life. It tells us of the good news of the gospel. It tells us the bad news of our state in which we are in before you and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Brett and that he has responded in faith and that you have uh, providentially arranged circumstances uh, even through his logical way of thinking to inquire and know about the Lord and the true meaning of life. And we just thank you, Father, for saving him. We thank you for his profession of faith. And as he obeys you in his waters of baptism, we ask that you might bless him and help him and encourage him and strengthen him in the faith as he endeavours to walk a life uh, for you. So, Father, we give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.